Let's get to it. Let's turn to the book of Lamentations as we continue going verse by verse through the Bible. We're going to uh, probably, Lord willing, finish up Lamentations, maybe even this coming Wednesday. And then we got that, uh, the book of Ezekiel. Wow. Uh, our work's cut out for us there. Uh, but it's a great book. Uh, Lamentations. Um, the word lament. We've talked about this on Wednesday night. Lamentation. The, the, the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the old Hebrew Bible is translated in like 270 BC. Um, interesting, you know, the word that's used in the Septuagint is the word we would get um, for the word dirge. What's a dirge? Well, a dirge is like a depressing long um, poem uh, or song that's kind of a, uh, a sad thing. And, um, and that's what the Septuagint calls this book. Instead of lamentations, a dirge. Uh, we learned on Wednesday night, it's, it's five chapters, five poems. And they're also acrostic, interestingly enough, which means in the Hebrew alphabet, which the Hebrew alphabet has, has 22 letters, unlike our alphabet. Um, so chapter one and two of Lamentation has 22 verses. And each verse starts with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The, the word alphabet is a Hebrew term, by the way. Uh, Aleph, bet is the uh, A and the B of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, so... Um, so chapters one and two, 22 verses. Chapter three, uh, 66 verses. And chapter four and five, 22 verses. What's the deal with that? Well, each one of those chapters is A, B, C, D in the Hebrew. Uh, except for the third chapter with the 66, it goes A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. You think, well, what was Jeremiah doing there? Now you'll notice uh, it's not in our translation because ours is translated to English and the letters don't work out. Uh, in the English translation. But if you were reading a Hebrew Bible, there'd be the ABCs and Lamentations. And we talked about how um, the Hebrews would do that in some of the Psalms, but also in the Lamentations to help people memorize. Why would anybody want to memorize the book of Lamentations? <laughs> this dirge, this depressing you know, book. Well, as it turns out, this is one of the holy inspired scriptures of God. And Lamentations deals with people who are lamenting and especially Jeremiah himself. Now, up to this point in our story, we've been studying you know, the book of Jeremiah and Je Jeremiah kind of holds his deck pretty close in that he's, he is the weeping prophet. We know that, he's called the weeping prophet. Remember Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah said, my eyes are like fountains. Uh, he's a cry guy, you know. And, uh, and yet, you know, so was Jesus. Jesus was a guy who cried, uh, wept over Jerusalem, wept at Lazarus' tomb. Um, I think that's kind of important to know that that's the way these guys rolled. But you, you, you knew Jeremiah was sad because of people's sin. He was sad because of the destruction of Jerusalem. But did you know that I think that Jeremiah dealt with depression, real depression? And we only learn that like here in chapter three of Lamentations. It's where it kind of becomes personal. No longer is it just Jeremiah generally talking about Jerusalem and Israel and the Jews he's pretty much saying, man, the Lord's forsaken me. I'm left in the dark. I'm going through a really hard time. I feel trapped. I feel like the Lord's shooting at me. Like he says all this stuff that you're kind of like, no, Jeremiah. No, that's not what's happening. Now here's the thing. This is where it gets a little interesting. And some of you are not gonna like what I'm gonna say. And I totally get that. Um, and you can, you can think what you want, I guess. But have you ever noticed there's a tension between we pastors and the world of psychology. Have you ever sensed that tension? Good, because it's there. 
Why is that? I'll tell you why there's tension between psychology and people in ministry and Bible guys. Here's why. Psychology claims to be the authority on the human psyche. Like we are the people who've studied psychology, the study of the psyche. And so psychology comes up with its ideas of how to fix things and help people and, uh, and all that. You say, well, what does that have to do with the Bible? Well, as it turns out, the Bible claims to be the authority on the human soul. You know, the inner person. And so here's what happens. Psychology says, we know more about this than you Christians or Bible teachers or anything. But when the Bible says the soul, the word soul, or often in the Hebrew Old Testament, the word heart, lev is the Hebrew word, um, that describes the inner man. In fact, by the way, when the New Testament says the word soul, guess what the Greek word for that is? Psyche. So when the Bible says, you know, uh, that our soul is entrusted to the care of God, that means your psyche, the, the part of you that thinks and feels your emotions. And, and even the dysfunctions and the problems. So it's funny because the psychological world kind of has its you know, diagnosis and its remedies. And, and you know, I've noticed that a lot of people in psychology say, well, we're into science. And you Christians are more into spiritual things. Well, that's probably true too. The problem is, I think science is only barely catching up to the Bible. I think the Bible has been way ahead of science from the very beginning. Uh, you could, we, could, we could talk about that for days. Uh, while people were saying the world was flat, and I'll admit, even some Christians who weren't reading their Bibles, by the way, thought the world was flat. Science, uh, as it turns out, found out that the world is actually, the earth is, is, is a sphere. It's a round ball. Guess what? Thousands of years before we figured that out, scientifically, the Bible says that the earth is a sphere and it's hung upon nothing. Like when the Bible touches on science, it's so amazing, it's always accurate. You'd think a you know, several thousand year old book written by 40 different authors over a 1500 year period on three different continents and three different languages, you'd think we'd have some, some major problems with science and the Bible, but as it turns out, nope, not, not at all. But science continues to rewrite itself. Masks are scientifically not helpful. A few weeks later, Masks are important, and if you wear a mask, you're, you're saving lives, and if you're not wearing a mask, you're a murderer. Science. Well, which science are we supposed to leave? The one that was three weeks ago, or the one that's this week? Or Like, it's so funny how we claim science, science, science. And, and what I've noticed is on both sides of arguments in the secular world, you'll hear all kinds of things that are you know, given to science. Isn't it interesting that the Bible says in the last days, people will be you know, committed to that which is science, falsely so-called. That's what the Bible says about the last days. Now, when it comes to psychology, as it turns out, and I've taken some, I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but I have taken some psychology at the college level, and, um, and I've learned a lot about what psychology believes. And I, I remember a reader, I like to read about stuff. And what you'll find is there are true things in psychology, and some of the things have been helpful. I'm not totally dismissing psychology altogether. But you know, when it's true in psychology, you'll also find it's true in the Bible. But when the Bible says something that sort of controverts or goes against psychology, I would go with the Bible. The Bible continues to prove itself correct. Now, let me give you an example. In psychology, one of the problems people have um, when they're struggling is something that psychology calls thought distortion. What is thought distortion? Well, it's when you have the, just a wrong view. It's a distorted way of thinking. 
you know, um, you know, the psychology of, of someone who has an eating disorder of some kind. Oftentimes it's a thought distortion, that there's a, like in the most radical sense. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, you know, but like the, uh, the, the person who feels like they're really fat, but everybody else, no, no, you need to, you need to put on some weight. You're, you're, you're unhealthily skinny. But what is it that's in a person's mind that says, no, 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 I'm, I'm fat, even though they're skinnier than anyone anybody knows, that's called a thought distortion and it can be really dangerous. Now, um, there's also the person that's depressed because they think nobody likes them and that they always mess up and that they're always this, you know, these overgeneralizations that are really not true. And, and all the person's friends around them is like, no, no, no. You're, you're an amazing person and, and people like you. And, and, and that person, no, 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 that's a thought distortion. Now that's what psychology calls it. The Bible calls it lies from the enemy where Satan is whispering in people's ears things that are just not true. Um, deception. Uh, in fact, Satan is like the father of lies. Isn't that something? And, and the Bible says that Satan whispers in our ears day and night, what? Accusation. The, the enemy accuses you day and night, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, the enemy will accuse in your brain and make you feel bad about yourself and all this stuff. Now, the uh, world calls it thought distortion. We call it you know, spiritual deception from the enemy or even from yourself. But, but then the, what does the world do? The world says we need to change the way we think about ourselves. And, and uh, now I'm gonna make this comical and we've gotten better at this, but remember in like the 80s, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and people like me, I'm a winner. Uh, you know, and, and you talk to yourself. Remember that, that whole thing? Now we've, we've honed in and it doesn't sound so stupid the way uh, you know, psychology tries to deal with these thought distortions and stuff. This is where, <laughs> this is where I think we are going wrong, perhaps. When the world looks psychologically at a person who's got thought distortion, I'm just giving you one example. Um, they say, look in yourself and, and encourage yourself and, and build up yourself. And, and it's about your self-esteem and about correcting those wrong think, ways of thinking. But as it turns out, the Bible teaches us very different. Forget about yourself. Stop thinking about yourself. If you wanna be miserable, just keep thinking about yourself. Um, that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that self-esteem is the, is the way to, to build up your self-esteem, is the way to fix it. The Bible says your self-esteem is the problem. So rather than thinking about yourselves, uh, the Bible says don't think about yourself, think about the things of other people and prefer other people over yourself. And, and as it turns out, there's a bunch of interesting stories in the Bible. Now you gotta remember as a, a non-scientist point of view, but a biblical point of view, the Bible not only tells us what to do and how to do it, but it gives us all these illustrations. It's like a picture book. And when it comes to psychology, there's all kinds of pictures. Speaking about thought distortion and depression, were there people in the Bible that were depressed? That really dealt with some tr troubling times and there was thought distortions involved. Remember, remember uh, Elijah the prophet? He, he, you know, he was this brave prophet who did all this amazing stuff and then all of a sudden, he goes into a cave and one wicked lady yells at him and he runs for his life, ah! And he runs and he hides in a cave. And he's like, I'm the only prophet in all of Israel that's left. And he was really, woozy, woozy, woo, woo. Woe is me. That was, that was Elijah the prophet. And do you remember what the Lord told him? The Lord said, uh, hello, 
you're not the only prophet. That's a thought distortion. That's a lie from the enemy that you think you're the only prophet, but there's still, there's hundreds and hundreds of prophets left in all of Israel. You're just, you're just thinking wrong about that. That's what the Lord, you know, and, and the Lord ended up ministering to him and bringing him back. But, but you know, there's an example of a guy who's depressed. <coughs> Excuse me, David himself uh, was, was a guy who had all kinds of disorders and dysfunctions psychologically. Um, and David doesn't even try to hide it. I mean, right there in the middle of the Psalms, he's like, why art thou cast down, O my soul? That's just a King James way of saying, why am I so depressed in my psyche? Why is, why, is, uh, why is my soul disquieted? Have you ever been disquieted? The word disquieted is something we don't use as much anymore. But have you ever had that troubling thought where you lay your head down at night and you wanna go to sleep and you're really dead tired, but because you're disquieted, your soul, it's your, your brain is stirring and you can't calm yourself down and go to sleep. That's what it means to have a disquieted soul. He says, why art thou cast down on my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? And then David said, but hope thou in God. When did he say that? It's actually an interesting story. Um, David was out fighting battles. He, you know, he, David's such a unique guy, you know, because he was an artist, he was a musician, but he was a military hero. Like you don't see that combo very often. Like a guy who's a total stud, but he's also an artist and he's always weeping and depressed, but he's also like, it's an, he's an amazing guy. I've noticed people, by the way, that tend to be more depressed and emotional are often some of those talented and creative people you'll meet. Historically, that's true. David was one of those guys. But we also see the way David worked through that. Um, let me give you an example. He, he was out fighting battles with his 600 men. When they got home, their, their little village where they all lived was burnt to the ground. And their wives and their children were taken hostage and the men were so bummed, they're like, David, what were you doing? You had us out fighting battles when we should have been protecting our own homes. And so mad were they at David, they started to pick up rocks and they thought to stone him. Their leader, their captain, stone him to death. And we know that David's really bummed at this point. That would be a depressing day. You lost your family, your city's burned to the ground and your men wanna kill you, that's a bad day. So the Bible says, so David did what? He encouraged himself in the Lord. That's what it says. First Samuel chapter 30, he encouraged himself in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, as it turns out, Psalm 42 is the scripture he wrote at that moment in his life. When you read Psalm 42 under the superscription there, it says the Psalm when David was getting his family back at Ziklag, the, the town where this was at. And, um, and so what did David do in encouraging himself? That's when he said, why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asked himself. Now I can give him an answer because your men want to kill you, your kid and kids and your wives are all taken captive. Uh, you have a reason to be depressed, David. That's what I would say. But David says, why art thou cast down? He says, hope thou in God. He tells himself this. He's talking to himself about where, where his hope lies. And it's not in his ability to defend himself or to not get stoned by his guys. For those of you from Portland, getting stoned in the Bible means rocks uh, thrown at you. Um, just a little point of clarification. Um, and so David, his life's on the line, you know, and he encourages himself in the Lord. He says, hope in God. Why art thou cast down? Why am I so disquieted? Hope thou in God. That's what he says. Um, so Brett, you're saying, that we should just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps when we're depressed? Well, that's ridiculous and psychology doesn't support that. 
Well, actually, I'm not saying just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. There's actually biblical examples of a little more of a nuance of what that's all about. And we find that in David, but we also maybe find it even better here in Lamentations with Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is depressed. But let's review. Remember the verses we left off on last week? I wanna pick those up. This will be our text for today. And we'll kind of think through and pray through and meditate on this because it's worth, worth our time. These are glorious verses, some of my favorite in the Bible. It's, uh, you know, Lamentations chapter three, verse 21. Lamentations three twenty-one. It says there, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And he goes on with some great stuff. We'll look at that on Wednesday night, the rest of his talking about what the Lord does. But these, these three verses here are profound, how Jeremiah does this. Now, now many of you have heard this. Hymns have been written about these words that Jeremiah writes because they're so glorious. And they're smack dab here in the middle of the book of Lamentations. And Jeremiah, man, he, 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 he says this, but, but if you read the verses before, you're like, what just happened? It's almost a little disorienting when you read the whole chapter because verses one through 20 uh, might just be some of the most miserable words I've ever read. Jeremiah chapter, or Lamentations chapter three, verses one. Jeremiah in these, let's, let's read these 20 verses because I want you to see the context of what Jeremiah is going through here. He's about as depressed as it gets and he paints this very depressing picture. Are you ready? Hold on to your hat. It says here in Lamentations 3.1, Jeremiah says, I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. The rod of whose wrath? The Lord's. Remember the Lord says, I'm spanking Israel with my rod and they're, they're getting disciplined. And Jeremiah's like, I have seen the affliction Verse two, he hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely, verse three, against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. Question, is that a thought distortion? Where Jeremiah saying, the Lord's turned against me and he's led me to the darkness. Is that what really happened? I think that's deception. The enemy, I think, is working on old Jeremiah saying, man, look at the Lord's failed you. He's mad at you, Jeremiah. And it gets worse. Verse three, surely against me as he turned, he's turned his hand against me all the day. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. He hath builded against me and compassed me with gall and travail. He hath set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. Now, this is pretty brutal. Um, he's saying, I feel boxed in. I, I have nowhere to go. Have you ever been in that place where you feel like you have zero options? That's where Jeremiah, remember, where is Jeremiah when he's writing this? If you recall, he has been in literal heavy chains, remember? Um, after 42 years of preaching and no one, list, no one listening to Jeremiah, that's tough enough. Then the Babylonians crushed Jerusalem, wiped out the city. And then what happens to Jeremiah? Jeremiah gets chained up by the Babylonians. They start to walk him toward Babylon. When, remember the commanding officer of the Babylonian army, um, Nebuzaradan? He comes up and says, Jeremiah, you know, you guys are going through this because you guys have forsaken the Lord and you're a bunch of sinners. Remember Jeremiah was saying, he must be thinking, 
No, duh. That's what I've been preaching for 40, 42 years. This guy's like, Jeremiah, you guys are guilty. And he's like, yeah, okay. And the guy says, well, you can go to Babylon and hang out with me, or you can stay here. What do you want to do? And, and, and Jeremiah said, I'd like to stay here. So they drop all the chains and they, they leave him in a pile of garbage in Jerusalem. What could be worse? Well, then these Ammonites came and they attacked Jeremiah and Baruch and just a small group that's there and left in Jerusalem and they chained them up again and start taking them to Ammon, Jordan. But then a guy, uh, you know, Johanan comes and rescues Jeremiah and Baruch and they take the chains off again and they come back to Jerusalem. Remember the story? And then they're like, okay, Jeremiah, we're in trouble. Gedaliah got murdered, who is the leader of the Babylonians left in charge. Now he's dead. The Babylonians are gonna kill us. What do we do? Do we run to Egypt or should we stay here and hide? Like, what should we do? Jeremiah said, I'll go and pray. We'll do whatever you tell us, Jeremiah. So Jeremiah goes for 10 days and prays, comes back and says, okay, you guys, the Lord says, do not go to Egypt, stay here and I'll protect you. And they said, Jeremiah, you're a liar. We hate you. And so they made Jeremiah go with them to Egypt. When was Lamentations written? Right before they left to go to Egypt, when they made Jeremiah and Beirut go with them. I mean, Jeremiah has been through the mill. He has had a tough ministry, to say the least. And, and now he's saying, there's no place for me to go. I'm boxed in, I'm out of, out of options. And the Lord has left me in darkness and my chains are heavy. That's what he says, let's read on. He says, Verse eight, also when I cry and shout, he shutteth out my prayer. Was the Lord shutting out Jeremiah's prayer? Nope, that's a deception. That's one of the things the enemy will whisper in your ear, a thought distortion, that the Lord doesn't hear your prayers. Verse nine, he hath enclosed my ways with hewn stone, he hath made my paths crooked. He was unto me as a bear lying in wait, as a lion in secret places. He hath turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He hath made me desolate. He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. I'm a bullseye. Have you ever felt like you're a target for trouble? People are shooting at you. Jeremiah says, the Lord's shooting at me and I'm the bullseye. I got a mark on my back. In verse 13, he hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people and their song and all their day. The word derision in the King Jimmy here, it means laughing stock. I become a laughing stock. Everybody's laughing at me. Verse 15, he hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. Wormwood is a word in the Bible that sort of the equivalent of poison. Verse 16, he hath broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity, and I said my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them until still in remembrance and is humbled in me. Told you it was depressing. Like Jeremiah's, wouldn't you say he's a little blue? He, he's feeling like, man, life is over. I'm in the darkness. God has forsaken me. He doesn't hear my prayers. I'm boxed in. Even the Lord's shooting arrows at me. I mean, he's got all this stuff. And, and by the way, none of this is true, but this is the classic example of someone who's really, really depressed and is just not seeing things clearly. That's Jeremiah. How does he pull up out of that? Does he look in the mirror and say, I'm a prophet of the Lord and I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and Jesus one day will quote me. 
Is that what he, is that what he said? Is that what he did? No. <laughs> Actually, what he does is he totally shifts gears instantly. That's why this is such a shocker. He goes from this horrible depression to suddenly verse 21, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Because everything he said earlier was hopeless. But he says, something has come to mind now and this is why I have hope, verse 21. And here it is, verse 22. It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Do you see how the context of these three verses, it's like he just totally does a 180, going from misery and despair to suddenly, but I remember something. And I recall the hope that I have. And the hope is this, that man, his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. His compassions fail not. You see, I think we can learn from Jeremiah and there's great lessons to be learned. You know, it's the same thing David did when David encouraged himself in the Lord. Um, instead of encouraging yourself in yourself, that's what psychology tends to want you to do. Either you do that or you medicate. And there's a place for medication for sure. Uh, but, but I worry that Christians, we so quickly turn to medications and stuff. And it's not me saying this, the world, even secular medicine is saying, yeah, way too many take drugs that are altering serotonin levels. And there's a lot of people that really shouldn't be on these drugs, but they are. Um, some people do need them. I, I'm convinced that, that they can be used. And as long as it's first seeking first the Lord's praying, not just going right to, I, I kind of feel a little depressed. And suddenly the doctor will take these. And people just do this so quickly. Um, I, I'm worried that we, we're doing that. It's not just me, it's, it's legitimate medical science is saying, yeah, too many people are on drugs. Um, so what's the alternative then, Brett? Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps? No, let's learn from Jeremiah. Notice number one with me as you're jotting down your notes. Number one, Jeremiah's recollection. This is where his you know, thought distortion, if you wanna call it that, or his you know, deception from the enemy, this is where it comes to a halt, is when he recalls. It's, it says in verse 21, then this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. He, he recalls the things which give him hope. And it's not that he's smart enough and that he's good enough and people like him, because none of that really is true. He recalls to hope the Lord. He sets his eyes on the Lord. He gets his eyes off of himself and says, but I recall that which gives me hope, the Lord. Man, I love that. That's the secret, to remember who the Lord is and what he does. Jeremiah was coming up with a bunch of harebrained ideas of what was going on. The Lord's forsaken me. He doesn't hear my prayers. He's led me to darkness. He's shooting arrows at me. He's like a bear in the, in the thicket waiting to pounce on me. Like all of that was really not true. But finally he recalls that which is true, that which gives him hope. I love that. Question, do you know the good things that you can recall that the Lord has done for you personally, but also what the scripture says practically about who the Lord really is? Man, we all are tempted to think with those same lies and deceptions that the Lord's mad at you and hates you, that you're a sinner and God's really disappointed in you. Um, I still maintain, I've, I, I say this and once in a while somebody will say, like, oh, the Lord can be disappointed in people. Nope, can't. He can be grieved by someone's behavior, but the Lord cannot be disappointed and I'll tell you why. Disappointment means you didn't expect it to happen. Oh, I'm so disappointed. Brad is such a disappointment. Nope, 
that's not what the Lord says. The Lord looks at Brett and says, I knew he was gonna do that. <laughs> I totally knew he was a loser already. <laughs> <clears throat> that's no shock there, no disappointment. Um, the Lord's not disappointed in you. That's a lie from the enemy. He can be grieved by our actions, but the disappointment is a human characteristic. I don't think the Lord can have because nothing surprises the Lord. But, um, but the enemy will whisper that one. Oh, the Lord's gonna, he's mad at you or disappointed in you. And or your sins are just too bad for the Lord to forgive. You've done that sin one too many times. And the Lord, he sees that you're not really repentant and this and that. And, and we start remembering, you know, things that are just not even really true. But it's when Jeremiah recalls things that were true. Now, now you and I are blessed even more than Jeremiah because Jeremiah didn't have the New Testament. We do. And we can remind ourselves that the truth of Scripture, that the Lord, man, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like the lies about us feeling like God's not gonna forgive us for our sins, the Bible makes it clear that that's just thought distortion. Some people give up. I just, I'm done being a Christian. I just can't be good enough. Well, wait a minute. The Bible says no one is good enough. The best news is he was good enough. And that's what Jeremiah's recollection does. He recalls what the Lord did for him, who the Lord is, not who he, Jeremiah himself is. You see, there's, there's a difference. Psychology says dig into yourself and figure out your own thoughts about yourself. The Bible says, forget about yourself and remember the Lord. Isaiah the prophet said, thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on what? Ourselves? No, whose mind is stayed on him. When you keep your mind stayed upon the Lord, the Lord will then keep you in perfect peace. That's what people need is peace for their soul. That's what Jeremiah needs. He even said, man, I have no peace. The peace is gone. Uh, he says there uh, in this little rant, you know, in verses one through 20, Jeremiah's recollection. And by recalling and remembering, man, how, how do you also recall? There's another way, not just the scriptures and the promises of God's word, but also uh, to write down the good things the Lord has done. I would recommend that, you know, you grab a good journal or, you know, if you're, if you're more of a digital person, get into your notes and, and, and record the great things the Lord has done in your life. Because I've noticed that when I'm in my thought distortion or my deception mode, when I'm thinking things are really bad and blue, the last thing I'm very good at is remembering all the good things the Lord has done for me. And so, there's, there's journals that I have in my office that I wrote 10 years ago even. And I can flip through and see, wow, look what the Lord did during the, those things that I was all depressed about back then. Look how the Lord brought me through that. And the things that I worried about had nothing to do with reality. And you can remember, you can recall, just like Jeremiah, the things that the Lord has done for you. So you've got the word and the promises of the word, but do you have things written down of all the great things the Lord has done for you? I would recommend that you start recording some of that stuff, especially when you're in a peppy mood, write it down. Because you might need that on a rainy day. What are the things the Lord has done for me again? Look at your list and go, oh yeah. Jeremiah's recollection, it reminds me of Psalm 111 um, because the Lord says that's why he even does wonderful things, that they are meant to be remembered. It says this, he hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. What did the Lord want us to do? To remember his wondrous works. That's why he made his wonderful works. They were meant to be remembered. Paul told young Timothy as a young minister in training, Paul said, a good minister will keep the brethren in remembrance 
of these things. Now, I got to tell you, one of the things about going through the Bible, like we do here at Athe Creek, um, some of you might think, well, Brett, he's already talked about this once before. Get used to it. Repetition is the mother of all learning. And when you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible, as it turns out, the Bible can be, in some ways, repetitive. Similar themes come up over and over again. And guess what? You and I, whether you know it or not, we can't get enough of it. Because the Lord wants us to remember his wondrous works. His, he has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Isn't that funny? Remember I told you about the, uh, the, the alphabet and the whole book of Lamentations? Why would God want the Jews to memorize that book? Um, I think it's because this is a great thing to remember that when you're in the dumps, like the Israelites were at that time, like Jeremiah was, man, you gotta remember. You've gotta remember that you, you know, the Lord's wondrous works to get you through that time. So Jeremiah's recollection is the first thing that kind of starts to change gears here for him. Number two on our list of observations, <clears throat> Jeremiah's reality. Suddenly he has a moment of great clarity and this is one of those things that might seem a little masochistic at first, but I think it's really healthy. And that is Jeremiah knew what the reality was of what he really deserved. As, as Jeremiah was a good guy, but he was still a sinner. And Jeremiah's reality is when he pops out of his stupor, one of the first things he says is, he says in, in verse 22, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. In other words, he's recognizing we all deserve to be consumed, dead, history, toast, curtains. That's what we deserve. And it's only because the Lord is merciful that we're not consumed. He's remembering that he's doing better than he deserves. Have you ever talked to somebody, how are you doing? They say, better than I deserve. That's a person who usually gets that, you know what, what we deserve is death and hell eternally. Everything starts looking pretty good after that. You know, it's not such a bad day because I'm not in hell. Spurgeon used to preach that, that, that preacher from the old days, who by the way, dealt with depression all the time great preacher from the 1800s in London. But one of the things he was famous for saying, he says, you know, as long as you're alive and not in hell, that's a good day. <laughs> it's true. I'm a little depressed today. Hey, but you're alive and you're not in hell. That's good. That's kind of what Jeremiah's doing. He's, he's, he's really bummed out and he's really blue. And then suddenly he says, but I remember the glorious things the Lord has done. But I also remember that it's of the Lord's mercies that I'm not consumed. I deserve to be consumed, but the Lord has not consumed me. In the same way, that's something when you're depressed to remind yourself that, <clears throat> man, I'm doing better than I deserve. Even though I'm a little blue or depressed or bummed, that man, at least I'm not in hell and I have the hope of heaven. See, this is where you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the glorious things the Lord has done. It's in the Lord that we find real, lasting, legitimate encouragement. And so Jeremiah's reality is, man, uh, I deserve much worse, but the Lord has been good to me. Um, you know, I think a lot of us think that we deserve good stuff because we're, we're, we're a culture of people that are very entitled. You know, as Americans, we believe we deserve freedom and we deserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I'm thankful that that's been our mantra over the years as Americans. <clears throat> but, but we don't deserve that, by the way. We deserve death and hell. 
So anything after that is pretty good, actually. The Lord could have just said, I'm gonna give you what you deserve. But he, he doesn't do that. That's why he's merciful. He's merciful to the sinners like us. <clears throat> I was thinking about this when I was a kid. <clears throat> do you guys remember back in the 80s, um, the bug zapper lights? I remember I was in the backyard and my dad comes carrying the biggest bugs. It was kind of a new invention back then. And <clears throat> you know, they have that black light and kind of this blue light and this little weird thing. And, and, and we had huge bugs in Southern Oregon, you know, the, this little different climate down there. And man, we had mosquitoes that could pick you up and fly away with you. I mean, they were huge, big bugs. And you know, and I'd get eaten alive in the backyard. So, you know, it was kind of a bummer, but I was so excited because he was bringing home this huge bug zapper. And we'd sit there eating our hamburgers off the barbecue, and, but right there, <clears throat> do you guys remember this? <clears throat> Bugs would be, oh, the light, and they'd fly toward the light, and as they'd come in, <clears throat> once in a while you'd be eating a burger or whatever, and all of a sudden a bug would get kind of stuck in the element there. You know what I'm talking about? <clears throat> and it'd start to smoke a little bit. you smell this roasted bug aroma, and then the little wings would flutter to the ground. Uh, and there'd be a pile of bugs at the bottom and it was working, I guess. <laughs> but I remember as a kid looking at that, I thought, you know, I'm so glad that's not what the Lord does to us. The Lord says, I am the light of the world. Oh Lord, thank you. Oh. <laughs> that's what we deserve. We deserve that. But the Lord says, no, I'm gonna be merciful and compassion. You deserve death and hell but I'm, I'm gonna be merciful. I love it. It's of the Lord's mercies that were not consumed. Jeremiah, this is the, one of the first steps really in him realizing that all of the stuff that he was saying is actually wrong. He's not done. He's not consumed. He's not to totally desolate, like he said. Jeremiah's reality. So you got Jeremiah's recollection that his hope lies in the Lord, his reality of what he really deserves is death and hell, but he, his reality is the Lord's been merciful to him. And that brings us to number three, Jeremiah's reason. You might say reasoning. What was his reasoning? See, he was depressed, but he sort of talked himself out of it, not by looking at his inner self and thinking about his past and, and you know, saying you're a good person and people like you, none of that. His, his reasoning, he had legitimate logical reasoning as to why he wasn't supposed to continue in this mode of depression. And the reasons were absolutely true for not being depressed. There's four main elements that we've already talked about really here that's listed. He says it's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. So his mercy, number one, that's one reason. You don't need to be depressed, the Lord's mercy. Number two, that his compassions fail not. We haven't really talked about that one. Aren't you thankful the Lord is compassionate? Man, Jesus looked over Jerusalem and wept over Jerusalem because he was compassionate. Um, you know, Jesus was, all these little kids wanted to run up to Jesus, but I was like, get these kids out of here. And Jesus said, oh, suffer the little children to come unto me. Why? Because he was compassionate. You know, Jesus looked at the woman caught in adultery. They were ready to stone her to death. And Jesus was compassionate upon, moved with compassion. We see that phrase associated with Jesus all the time. He's compassionate. And it says here, his compassions fail not. You and my compassions fail all the time. Are you a compassionate person? Oh, it's easy to be compassion when you see, you know, have compassion when you see a little puppy that's abused. Oh, the poor little puppy. I wonder sometimes people are more compassionate about things that are kind of goofy when we really should be passionate, compassionate about real things. You know, what's interesting is I believe that if you knew the story, 
the full story, every detail of a person's life, you would probably be more compassionate toward that person. Even the person that drives you nuts at work. If you knew their upbringing and what happened to them at home and if you knew the, the things they have struggled with and you'd start to see why they behave the way they do at work instead of just being angry and think, what a jerk, I bet you'd be compassionate. How do I know that? There's, there's evidence because Jesus is compassionate to you and me. God has a compassion for all of humanity. That's amazing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, anybody, would believe in him will have everlasting life. That's compassion for the whole world. How can God have compassion for the world? The answer, he knows the whole story. He knows everything about you. And yet he's got a compassion for you. I wonder if you're driving down the freeway and somebody cuts you off. You don't know who they are. You don't even know if it's a man or a woman. But what a jerk. And you think that person's a jerk. But what if you knew their whole story? I'm convinced if suddenly God flashed that person who just cut you off on the freeway, flashed that person's life before you and you saw the reason why they're in such a hurry today, and why they weren't looking when they changed lanes, if you could see the whole story, I bet you'd be compassionate because that's what the Lord, he, he knows how much of a sinner you are, the mistakes you're gonna make and the ones you've yet to even make, he knows all that and yet he still has compassion on you. Um, it was... Uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow who said this, and I think he put this eloquently, he said, if we could only read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. I think that's true. If we could only read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. That's really what the Lord does. He knows all of our hurts and pains and suffering. We have a high priest, Hebrews says, that has felt every suffering and thing we've felt. He understands, he gets it. And he shows compassions. And good news, reason number two for Jeremiah is the Lord's compassions fail not. They never fail. So his mercy, number one, his compassion, number two, and then the new start daily. They're new every morning. Every morning, his mercies are new. This is where those, the old hymn comes. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. That's the Lord. Jeremiah's reasoning is logical and accurate. And while he's sitting around moping and depressed, he starts saying, okay, wait, my hope is in the Lord. I deserve death and hell, but the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And also every single day, I get a new start with the Lord. That's what he's saying. And then he finishes it off, topping it off, icing on the cake. Great is the faithfulness of the Lord. The Lord is faithful. See, when the world says you need to get your thought distortions in order and think through yourself, you're, you're, you're thinking, I'm a champion and I have, I have the wherewithal to fix my problem and help myself. And, and the problem is, the d deeper you dig in yourself, the more disappointed you're gonna be. Uh, you won't like what you find there. But when you look deeper in the Lord, you'll find that, his compassions fail not, his mercies are new, but also his faithfulness is great. He's the faithful one, and his faithfulness is the only one that matters. You might have faithlessness. You might be weak in your faith, but the Lord says, I, I gotcha. My faithfulness, great. Now, when the Bible says great, you know, we use that word great. Oh, that's really great. Isn't it funny how we overstate? Oh, man, that little, uh, you know, th that little thing is awesome. We use the word awesome way too often, I think. Hey man, did you see that pizza? It's awesome! 
I wouldn't agree with you about pizza, but, <laughs> but it's funny what we call awesome. But isn't it something, when the Bible says something's great, do you understand it's legitimately great? Great is the faithfulness of God. Jeremiah's reason for not being depressed was legitimate, logical, and that's kind of how he pulls himself back out of this stupor, is he says, I'm gonna put my hope in the Lord, not in myself. I'm gonna remember that I deserve death and hell, but look at the Lord, what he's done for me. Those four things, mercy, newness each day, compassions that fail not, great faithfulness. That's, that's what he you know, reasons in his thinking. But then there's a final thought here that I wanna bring in that's really important. And you might think that it's a little disconnected, but it, it's not. And it has to do with once the Lord has done this for you and you realize what Jeremiah is realizing, you're out of that depression, then you and I are held to something that's kind of important. Because, uh, you know, when we have thought distortions and thinking, you know, lies from the enemy about how the Lord has forsaken us and all that, once you realize the Lord is good and he's done all this merciful kindness, compassion for you, the problem, the next thing I see people depressed about is when they're unforgiving themselves, when they forget to forgive other people when they're bitter in their own heart. And, and, and the Bible teaches us when you have been the recipient like Jeremiah or like us of God's compassion and his mercy, new morning mercies, and that his faithfulness is great, guess what? You then, once you've been lifted up in that way, you've gotta start reciprocating that behavior of the Lord to other people. You and I are called to that. And that brings to, to the, the fourth and final point, our responsibility. What is our responsibility as people? Well, it's just to be like the Lord, to be like Christ who forgives and is compassionate and his mercies are new every morning. Um, this is a serious thing, by the way, because the Bible teaches you and me um, some scary stuff. Like if you're unwilling to forgive everybody else, then the Lord won't forgive you. The quickest way to stop what Jeremiah was relishing, loving, that man, the Lord's merciful and compassionate and faithful, guess what, the biggest way to stop that and make that not work is for you to be forgiven, happy, receiving the Lord's mercy, but then being begrudging, you know, keeping a record of sin, holding grudges, that's gonna destroy you. The second group of people I see depressed in this world are a lot, a lot of times people that are unforgiving. If you wanna be messed up, harbor, harbor unforgiveness in your heart towards someone, and this is so sad, I, I, I've seen this far too much. And I'm not arguing that people haven't done horrible things. I mean, how many people have been abused, molested, beaten um, in their childhood? I mean, like the numbers are alar alar alarming and I don't even know if we really know because uh, half the time this stuff never even comes out. But what I've noticed is about this, and I've been in ministry long enough to know that, yeah, that, the deeds are horrible that, that people have done, abuse and stuff like that. But the, the problem is the abuser goes on and, with their merry way. And I, I trust that the Lord's gonna, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. So the Lord's gonna deal with that. But I've noticed how much the person who's been abused or the victim, which we're a victim culture, we celebrate victimhood, but we're the ones who actually lose when we hold unforgiveness and bitterness. So the Lord is forgiving you and big hearted towards you and his compassion and you can be happy about that. But when you're the one who's been the recipient of you know, ill treatment and sin, man, you've gotta be the person to be like the Lord and, and forgive. Otherwise you'll end up right back in that place of misery and despair. 
Um, flip on over to Matthew chapter 18 real quick with me. Um, now this cracks me up, Peter. I love Peter because I can relate to him. He's always saying stupid stuff. And he thinks he's doing good things, but he's, he's just kind of, it seems like the Lord's always like, no, 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 Peter. Uh, just sit down, be quiet. But Peter's like, oh, I got it, I got it. But this is one of those moments, I think you think this is the time I'm gonna get it right. So he's so excited to ask Jesus a question because I think, as I know, you know, the first century, there was a teaching going around with the Pharisees and I think Peter stole his material from the Pharisees. And so this is what happens in Matthew chapter 18, this is great. It says in Matthew 18, verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how oft shall, I, uh, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? Now this is where Peter's like, ah, this is great. I'm being so magnanimous, forgiving. I mean, a guy sins against me and seven times, that's a lot of forgiveness, seven times. Now in the Hebrew culture, seven is the number of completion and perfection. So, and, and, and by the way, the Pharisees did teach this. The Pharisee says, yeah, you, you forgive someone up to seven times, but on the eighth time, they're toast. You don't have to forgive them anymore. That was what the Pharisees taught. So Peter's like, okay, I'm gonna try this out. I heard them say this, and this, Jesus is gonna be so impressed with my knowledge. So Jesus, if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? And I'm sure he's thinking, Jesus is gonna say, oh, Peter, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You're amazing. You're gonna be the next Pope. Um, that's, not, that's not what Jesus said, as it turns out. Uh, what he says here is verse 22. Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Now I know some of you are already thinking, the math people, let's carry the one, 490 times. You're gonna forgive. But 491, that's when they're toast. That's still a lot of forgiveness, but that's not the point that Jesus was making. You know, Jesus took Peter's little seven and said, no, 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 70 times seven. Like you don't even have a clue how many times you're supposed to forgive somebody. And, and by the way, the Pharisees and Peter and all those guys should have known what forgiveness really should look like because how long does the Lord's forgiveness last? We know his mercy endures for how long? Forever. That's how long the Lord's mercy endures. So, you know, Peter, had he known, you know, the Psalms and what the Bible says about mercy, he should have said, yeah, I guess you gotta keep forgiving kind of in, in infinity. But Peter kind of was listening to the Pharisees. Now, now here's where it gets a little sketchy. Jesus then tells a little story after this little conversation, Peter, not seven times, 70 times seven. And then he tells the story. And this one makes me a little uneasy. Check it out. Verse 23 goes on in Matthew 18. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened to a certain king which would take account of his servants. And you know, some financial accounting. And verse 24, when he had begun to reckon, one of the servants was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. Now it's interesting because scholarship doesn't know exactly what 10,000 talents would look like. How much money was that? We don't know, but they, they, they make guesses. The most conservative lowest number that, that scholarship believes that 10,000 talents would, would be 58 pounds of gold. This guy owed some money, big bucks. He, the servant owed the master. So verse 25, it says, but for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had as payment to be made. That was the tradition of the day. If you owed money and you couldn't pay it back, 
they'd make you a slave and your family until you paid it back. And oftentimes it would take decades to, or more to earn enough as a slave to actually pay off your debt. This guy would have been a slave for the rest of his life and his family. But then verse 26, the servant therefore fell down and worshiped him saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee still. Play thee all. Verse 27, then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave the debt. Ha, wow, 58 pounds of gold. Yeah, okay, you don't owe me anything anymore. I forgive you of your debt. Oh, that's giant. But verse 28, the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. Now, how much is a hundred pence? We actually know that number. It's like five cents. It's like pennies. So he goes and finds his servant, this other servant uh, that owes him a hundred pence and lays his hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him saying, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. But he would not, but went and cast him into prison until he paid the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and they came and told it to their Lord, all that was done. And then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, oh, thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because you desired me. Shouldest thou also have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors until he should pay all that was due to him. So likewise, here's where it gets spooky, verse 35. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Does that make you a little nervous? If you have one little speck of unforgiveness in your heart towards someone who's sinned against you, even if they haven't said they're sorry yet, you're in dangerous territory. Unforgiveness and bitterness is gonna mess you up. And man, if you wanna be depressed, just keep being bitter, just keep being, being unforgiving. You see, um, here's where Jesus is saying all that compassion and all that mercy and all that stuff that Jeremiah was recollecting, <clears throat> that's all good right up until you don't reciprocate the same behavior to people who've wronged you. Um, there's a link to misery and despair when a person is unforgiving. So as a pastor, when I read the Bible and I hear people say, you know, I'm never forgiving them. Who? Uncle Bill. Because Uncle Bill did something or said something or, you know, whatever, when I was young and I'm not gonna, I was unforgivable. Boy, if you're saying something's unforgivable, you're already in trouble. And the Lord says, if you're not willing to forgive people who've wronged you, then my Father in heaven's not gonna forgive you of your sins. See, this is where Jeremiah said, man, I deserve death and hell. It's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. All of us deserve death and hell. So unless somebody's done something worse than sending you to hell for all of eternity, it's not bad enough for you to hold a grudge. Do you understand that? This is huge. I'm telling you something that's huge. The reason I say this is because too many people are still wrecked and their lives are ruined. The, 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 the sinner, the abuser, the person who's wrong, you, they go on their merry way and they just live their life. But you're the one who gets messed up by unforgiveness and bitterness. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says it's the same, the same thing really. It says, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. 
Even as the Lord's forgiven you, you're supposed to forgive others. And guess what? The Lord forgave you before you were even sorry. You and I have a tall order when it comes to doing what the Lord does. But the quickest way to depression is to wallow in your misery, look at yourself, but also to keep unforgiveness in your heart. Once you're forgiven of the Lord, my, my word to you today is to do what the Bible says. You know, 1 Peter says the same thing, by the way. Jot it down in your notes. 1 Peter 3, verses eight and nine. It says, finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion of one another. As lo love is brethren, be pitiful. Uh, that means to have pity on people. Uh, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, railing for railing, but contrawise or contrary to being evil for evil, railing for railing, be contrary to that. Blessing, knowing that you are there unto called, that you should inherit a blessing. You see, the knee-jerk human reaction when somebody wrongs you is to give evil for evil, or what's railing for railing? That means when somebody has done something to you, then you rail on them publicly. Um, here's how that looks. You have a job that you once had, um, and your employer did something wrong to you. Let's say they had a legitimate, you, you have a legitimate beef against your former employer. They didn't pay you the money they owed you. They didn't give you appreciation. They uh, didn't pay you enough. The people treated you badly, whatever it is. So you leave that job. And then for the rest of your life, whenever, remember when you used to work for such and such? Oh yeah, a bunch of losers, a bunch of thieves. That's railing for railing right there. You're still bitter. A job, that boss, what a jerk. What does the Bible say? Approve that which is excellent but there's nothing excellent about my former employer. Hey, what about that job you used to have? Well, you know what? They had the most beautiful blue carpet in their office. It was, it was so nice. You gotta find something to say. Remember your mom told you, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. This verse says, instead of railing for railing or evil for evil, blessing. You speak blessing upon those that have wronged you. Jesus talked about being kind to those that have wronged you and persecuted you. Bless those that curse you. The Bible is so opposite of what our knee-jerk reaction is. But the blessing is you're blessing those that have cursed you here in this verse, 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Um, it says, knowing that you are thereunto called that you should receive or inherit a blessing. Too many people are walking up bummed because they haven't received the blessing of 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9 by just letting that stuff go, forgiving people before they're sorry. Because that's the, that's the reason we can rejoice, even in the midst of depression, because we can remember this is what the Lord has done for us. He's forgiven us, his mercies fail not, his compassions fail not, his faithfulness fails not. He's just constantly loving, faithful, merciful, and kind. And so because of that, you and I have our marching orders to be more like him. Too many people are still in their blues and despair because they don't get this balance of first of all, who the Lord is, which should pull you up out of your despair. But then to stay in that place of goodness, you then have to not only receive that forgiveness and mercy of the Lord, but then start to show the mercy and the forgiveness of the Lord. That's our responsibility. I'll tell you, you know, um, depression is, is nasty and it's big. And I'm not diminishing its reality at all. I hope you understand that. But I am saying it's a serious problem that the world thinks it has its remedy, but there's a reason why. If, we were, if psychology was really working, don't you think we, we would start as humanity generally getting better? I got some stats here and this is what I finished with. 
depression during COVID. Since last year, one year ago this week, the depression rate of U.S. adults has tripled. There's been a tripling of the depression rate uh, in all the different demographic groups, kids, middle-aged, elderly, um, and most are linked to financial worries. Um, it's interesting because um, uh, the results showed that 27.8% of adults report, reported depression uh, symptoms in contrast with 8.5% of adults before the pandemic. Increases were higher across the spectrum of depression severity from mild, 24.6% versus 16% before the pandemic, to severe, which now is 5% of the population versus 0.7 severe depression of our population. So severe depression is way up. Here's interesting, um, before the pandemic, women were more likely to have depression symptoms than men. But for some reason during the coronavirus in the last year, this has kind of baffled those that study these things, that um, basically the same number, 22.2% of women and 21.9% of men are dealing with depression during this pandemic. Men are, are more depressed now than, than they have been in times past. And maybe it has to do with being a little bit out of control and not sure about your job and the finances and providing and all this stuff, but kind of where men feel their satisfaction and safety, uh, some of that's been taken away. And, and men are not really given as much to say, yeah, it's all about fear. But this last year has been all about fear and people are depressed. So it's a real thing and people are dealing with it, but learn from lamentations. As there Jeremiah, he makes the coronavirus crisis look like nothing. What he's gone through in verses one through 20 are profound, but he pulls up out of this stupor by remembering who God is, how much God loves him, the hope that we have in Christ. I pray that you will use this, Jeremiah's words from Lamentations three as your tools to pull up out of those depression times, remembering the Lord and what he's done. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, how I take this time to lift up those who are dealing with depression, a very real thing. And, and um, Lord, I know that you can feel, people can feel like Jeremiah, that the, the, they're boxed in, that you're shooting arrows at them, that you're mad at them, that they're in the darkness. Lord, I, I understand it's a very heavy and real thing. But we also know that what Jeremiah's conclusion was about who you are was even more real. And Lord, how thankful we are that you are the one that has not consumed us with the destruction that we deserve, but it's of your mercies that we're not consumed. And Lord, your mercies are new every morning. Help us to be remembering these things, that every day is a new day and you forgive us of our old sins of yesterday that your compassion doesn't fail, even though you know everything about us, you still have this heart of love and compassion toward us. And Lord, our faithfulness is faltering, fickle, but great is your faithfulness. Lord, we just celebrate on this Sunday morning the glorious truth. Help us to be reasonable. Help us not to listen to those lies of the enemy that come into our head about your, your, your anger at us or your disappointed in us or that we'll never be victorious or never see the end of our troubles. Lord, help us not to believe that stuff. Those are lies, not just thought distortions. 
true lies from the enemy. So help us to think of the truth. Help us to keep our minds stayed upon you and then let you keep us in perfect peace, Lord. So wrap your loving arms around those who are struggling. Encourage the, the souls, Lord, even in this room or watching online of people who are down. Lord, may they be encouraged by this good word from the scriptures. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.